Our Father, we are so thankful for the privilege to come together and to look into your word. Thank you for the body of Christ and the fellowship that we share. Father, increase our love one for another. Thank you for your scriptures and the truth that's therein. Lord, help us to conform our thinking to your thinking, to yield to the authority of scripture, to take it as our own and Lord, I pray by your spirit you'd help us to understand it. May we think according to it, Lord, during the weeks to come. We give you praise and honor this morning. Amen. This is week number 13 in our study of uh, eschatology. Does the sheet you have say week 12? This is week 12 in our study of uh, eschatology. (laughs) I only said I was working on week 13 this morning at about 5 a.m. when I couldn't sleep. So that's why I was in 13. The two is right next to the three. Thanks. I appreciate that. I do have difficulty with those number things, you know. So we, um, we've jumped to the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is written um, 800 years after. Joshua died. So it's quite a leap. And we've jumped over all the period of um, when the judges were ruling for about 300 years. We jumped over Saul and David and Solomon. We jumped over um, the kingdom being split into the north and the south, uh, the northern being Israel, the south being Judah. Uh, We jumped over the northern tribes being taken Um, by Assyria about 100 years before Ezekiel wrote, maybe 120. And then now we've come to the book of Ezekiel. And you remember Ezekiel starts um, five years after Ezekiel was taken into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came against Israel three different times. His first he came in 605 B.C., And that's when Daniel got taken to the land of Babylon, uh, about 16 years old. And then seven years later, eight years later, nine years later maybe, um, he comes again and he takes, uh, he puts up a vassal king who's supposed to serve him and he takes 10,000 of the nobility and included in those 10,000 was Ezekiel. Ezekiel was 25 years old. He's about the same age as Daniel. So Daniel's already been in the land of Babylon for nine years by the time Ezekiel was there. Ezekiel waits five years until he turns 30 because that's the time when a priest would begin to minister. He is a priest. And so at the age of 30, five years after being taken to Babylon, he begins this prophecy that we see. He was taken to Babylon in 597 B.C. This book begins in 592 B.C. Now, the thing, one of the things I love about Ezekiel, and if you look at it in detail, you'll see it. He writes chronologically. And so um, he gives many, many time frame references. And so you can actually know what year it is that he's writing and when things are happening as he writes them. Uh, He backtracks once or twice just for a year or two, but mainly 
he writes in chronological order. And so you can just read Ezekiel, and that is the unfolding of history chronologically. And uh, he writes some things that are going to happen in the future. We'll look at some of those this morning. Um, But mainly uh, the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel are chronological and are current events during the time in which Ezekiel lives and writes. Okay, and then we'll see there's a, a great shift made in chapter 34. Now, we've, the main reason I wanted to go to Ezekiel before we went anywhere else is because we were talking about the land when we talked about Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and the descendants, and then we got into Moses uh, coming out of Egypt and then Joshua taking the people into the promised land. And on his deathbed, I think it was pretty clear that Joshua said, we've not taken all the land. If you'll be faithful to God, then God will continue to do what he told us he would do from the very beginning, which is drive the people out of the land and allow you to take it little by little, meaning it wasn't all going to happen at one time. It was going to take years for this to happen. And we saw in the first chapters of Judges, Judges chapter 2 and 3, where God said the reason he didn't allow them to take all the land is because he wanted to test the generation that came after Joshua. That generation failed miserably. Joshua told them that they needed to remain faithful to God. Don't play the harlot with the gods of the lands or with the peoples. And that's exactly what the generation after Joshua did. Because of that, God told them that he would no longer drive the people out of the land and they wouldn't take the land. And so for 300 plus years, Israel is in disarray, unorganized, led by judges, mostly um, um, not serving God, mostly um, playing the harlot with the gods of the land. And so... We saw, and, and that was clear, that they hadn't taken all the land and they didn't take all the land in Joshua's life or in the generation after him. And so now we jump 800 years forward. They still haven't taken all the land. Nowhere in Israel's history did they take all the land. They took some under David's leadership when they went against the Philistines, but they didn't take it all. And Here we are 800 years later, and what I want to point out in Ezekiel is that God still speaks about the land. Many times in the book of Ezekiel, he talks about the land. You remember the first 28 chapters of Ezekiel is about God's judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, and that he's going to punish them He's going to allow them to be taken captive. Most of them are going to be killed. Um, Everybody in Jerusalem is going to be killed. The city is going to be decimated. The temple will be destroyed. I mean, all these things for 28 chapters, Ezekiel lays out what God's going to do and why. And we see the sins. We looked at some of those last week of Israel in full color where they've abandoned God, and in the city of Jerusalem, there was not one single person that God would have spared because he wept over the idolatry. Not a single person. So everybody 
in Jerusalem is corrupt. So, and you remember there were three passages during those first 20 chapters that we've looked at where God speaks of restoration. In the midst of all this devastation, there's three small passages where God speaks that one day he will restore Israel. So that's where I want to start this morning. The first one's in chapter 11, verse 16. And we looked at these last time, but it sort of sets our mind for where we're going going forward. 11, 16, God, this is when the, the literal presence of God was leaving the temple. God is abandoning them in his presence, leaving them. And, and Ezekiel has a vision of it. But then at the end of that short passage, in 16, God says, therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, though I have had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them for a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, They will remove all the detestable things and all the abominations from it. And I'll give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I'll take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And they will be my people and I shall be their God. So speaking of restoration, a time in the future after all this destruction when God will bring them back. And you notice he says very specifically to the land of Israel. If you look on down in verse 18, he then says, um, when they come there, they will remove the detestable things and all the abominations. The abominations is what Ezekiel is writing about now. So all of that will be undone and done away with but God says that he'll bring them back to the land of Israel. Okay, so what does that mean? Is that the same land? And now think about it. Ezekiel is talking to people who are exiled from Israel. They've only been there when he starts for most of them for only about five years. Some of them have been there for 15 years. So when Ezekiel is standing in front of them and he says the land of Israel, they know what he's talking about. It's not like they would have forgotten in five years. And so in their minds, I think he was talking about where they just come from. Then in Ezekiel 16, the last three verses, 60 through 63, God talks about establishing them again. He says, and and this is... uh, Again, in the midst of all this prophecy of destruction, he says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant, Thus I will establish my covenant with you 
and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you all that you have done, the Lord God declares. So he doesn't say anything about the land there, but he does talk about forgiving them and restoring them. And then there's another place where he talks about the land in the midst of all this destruction, and that's the last place we looked last week. It's chapter 20, in verses 33 through 42. I'm not going to read that much. But out of the first 28 chapters, these are the only three passages that speak of anything good. Everything else is black. It's just bad, terrible. God's judgment's going to be poured out. But then look at what he says, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 20. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with my wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I'll bring you out of the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I'll enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I'll enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I'll make you pass under the rod and I'll bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge you from the, the rebels and those who transgress against me. I'll bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve everyone as idols, but later you will surely listen to me and my holy name you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. There I will accept them and I will seek your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your holy things. You keep on reading, and he says in 42, And you will know that I am the Lord when you bring into the land of Israel, when I bring you into the land of Israel, the land which I swore to your forefathers. That cannot be mistaken, right? I mean, God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them, literally in person, that he would bring them into the promised land. That's what God, this is God speaking again, 800 years after the death of Joshua, through the voice of Ezekiel to the people of Israel, saying, I'll bring you into the land that I promised to your forefathers. Pretty clear. I don't think you can mistake what he's saying. And he's talking to the people who just got exiled out of the land. So they know that somewhere in the future, God is going to bring us back to the land. Okay? And Ezekiel will write about that beginning in chapter 34 in great detail. So when we get there, we have to make some decisions. And we'll do that when we get there. Now, I do believe it's profitable to walk through 
these other chapters before we get to the chapter 34, just so in context you can see how God judged Israel and not only how he judged Israel, but how he basically judged every other nation on the planet at the same time. And I want to show you a couple of things here. In chapter 21, look down at verse 19. This is when, this is a parable about the sword of the Lord. And Ezekiel comes, well, God tells him, set up two signs. One that points to, um, one goes to Israel and one goes to, it's not Moab, it's the one before Moab. Sons of Ammon, thank you. And Nebuchadnezzar gets to choose which one he's going to go against first. But I want you to look at how he chooses. And this, is, this speaks to the issue that God uses even evil governments to exact his punishment as he pleases. So look at what, so they come to this crossroads, verse 19 of 21, as for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Both of them will go out of one land and make a signpost, make it the head, head, make it the head of the way to the city. You shall mark a way to the sword to come to Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and to Judah into fortify Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways. And look how he makes his decision. To use divination, he shakes the arrows, he consults the household of idols, he looks at the liver, into his right hand came the divination, Jerusalem, to set battering rams, to open the mouth for slaughter, to lift the sword with a battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to, to cast up ramps, to build a siege wall. So here's Nebuchadnezzar coming to do the will of God, and he decides to go against Jerusalem by divination, by shaking his arrows, by praying to the idols, this is not a godly man. And yet God is going to use him to exact judgment on Jerusalem. That speaks to some of the things that are going on on the planet today. That God can use even evil kings to do his will. And he does. And you'll see it over and over again here in Ezekiel. And so they decide to go against Jerusalem first. And then he'll come back to the sons of Ammon. Now notice down in the same chapter, 21, 28 and 29. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the sons of Ammon and concerning their reproach and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for the slaughter, to cause it to constitute that it may be like lightning. While they see you for false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place 
you on the necks of the wicked who are slain, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end. So here is Ezekiel speaking to the sons of Ammon that Nebuchadnezzar's sword is going to be sharpened so that he can slaughter you. And he does. He totally wipes them out. He'll do the same in Jerusalem, but it takes him a while. And we'll see that as, as Ezekiel unfolds here. Now chapter 22, you can read it. It just lists the sins of Israel. And they are plentiful. 31 verses just listing the sins of Israel over and over and over. This is why God is coming against them. And then in chapter 23, he speaks of two daughters. And one of them is named, these names are weird, Ohala, and the other one's name is Holabah. Oholabah. And these two daughters, if you read it and you get the imagery right, they represent the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They both came out of the same mother, that be in the nation of Israel under Solomon. And then you had Ohala and Oholabah. Ohala is the northern kingdom. And this will go in there. Um, look down in verse 5 and then in verse 9. Chapter 23. Ohala, this is the northern kingdom, played the harlot while she was mine. And she lusted after her lovers, after the Assyrians, her neighbors. So the northern kingdom played the harlot with Assyria. Then down in verse 9. Therefore I gave her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. So God gave them just what they wanted. And the Assyrians took them captive and made them their slaves. And the northern kingdom was done. Then you have Ohalabah, which is the southern kingdom, which we think is the most righteous kingdom, that they were better than the northern kingdom. They lasted another 120 years beyond the northern kingdom. But God here says they were worse. Look down in verse 11. Now her sister, Ohalabah, which is the southern kingdom, Judah, saw this, and yet she was more corrupt in her lust than she, meaning the northern kingdom, and her holiters were more than the holiters of her sister. And then he lists them. The next verse, verse 12, she also lusted after the Assyrian governors and officials, the ones near, magnificently dressed, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And then verse 14. So she increased her holotries and she saw men portrayed on the wall, images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion. The Chaldeans are the nation of Babylon. So they lusted after the Babylonians also. And then it gets even worse down in verse 19. Yet she multiplied her harlotries, remembering the days of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt. And they do bring in the Egyptians to, um, to be their allies. And so the southern kingdom was worse than the north 
Because they had not just Assyria, but Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. That they obeyed their gods, they lusted after their people, they did abominations before the Lord with those people. And so this is why God is going to judge them. Because of all this idolatry, all of the horrorlatry of the people of God with all these other nations. The exact thing that God told Joshua and Moses that these people would do when he met with them in the tent of meeting. It's been going on now for a thousand, over a thousand years when you get to this point. It started with the judges a little bit better under the kings, but after the kings, right back to where they were before. And remember, the three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, only reigned for a total of 100 years. So out of 1,100 years, you have 100 years when the nation was somewhat turned back to God. It's, it's just, and, and God's had enough. Hey, David, in, in, in this particular text and historical reality, right. you can say that, because if you, if you don't have that at the foundation of your, your, your faith and understanding of Scripture, then everything is off. But here's a, here's a fascinating example how God from eternity's past has decreed all things forward. Right. Where we are, the end from the beginning. And what he's done is he's decreed and is therefore the underlying cause. And the means by which he accomplishes that underlying cause is the sinful action of humanity. Right. And he said the same thing to the Assyrians in Isaiah 10. He literally says, you're going to be the, the, the arm of my sword. Right. Which is crazy. And I'm going to punish you for doing, quote, he says in verse 7 of Isaiah 10, but he does not so intend and his heart does not so think. Meaning the Assyrians don't even realize that it is God right. who has decreed this to come to pass. They're doing exactly what their hearts want to do. And it is precisely fulfilling God's decree as punishment upon Israel. And this shows this tension. Oh, yeah. God being the underlying cause of all things and the means by which he accomplishes it is often sinful behaviors of men. Most often. Most often. Uh, if you, you think about it, that King Nebuchadnezzar was not a good man was not a holy man. You can make an argument that he turned to the Lord after his seven years of insanity. I don't know. I mean, I I would not say yes or no. I'm undecided whether he turned to the Lord or not. But in the midst of all that, they are slaughtering nation after nation after nation, including Israel. Look at the 24 verse 1. This is where the siege begins. 24, 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord came to, to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month. That's pretty precise. And we could trace when that is. Um, and, and the month saying, Son of man, write the name of the day, this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege 
to Jerusalem this very day. Now, that does not mean that they take the city on that day. What it means is they begin their siege on that day. Because we'll see later, it takes 18 months to take Jerusalem. And during those 18 months, the people inside the city can't leave the city. And so they are starving to death. And there's, it's just bad inside the city. Imagine they could not leave for 18 months. And you got these people outside that if you try to leave are going to kill you instantly. That's what's going on. And it begins here in 24. Now, this is the year 588 B.C. Okay? The ninth year, the tenth month. Now, the, the next passages in Ezekiel 24 talk about a pot of boiling water. Okay? Why a pot of boiling water? Because that's an image of what's going on in Jerusalem. Imagine a pot of boiling water and you being lowered into it. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. And so it's an example for them. And then, for his own purposes, Ezekiel's wife dies in chapter 24. And God tells Ezekiel, put your shoes on, put your hat on, and do not mourn for your wife, who was a holy woman. And so that was his public display. In private, God doesn't forbid him from mourning. But that not mourning publicly is a lesson to the exiles in Babylon that when they hear that Jerusalem has fallen, they should not mourn. Because God is telling them exactly why they're going to be slaughtered. Because of all this idolatry, all this harlotry. And so they are not to mourn. And so Ezekiel, with his wife dying, is the example that God uses. I mean, it's, this is a tough book when you read the first 28 chapters. It's just hard. David, do you ever think about, do you see the remnant in both the exiles and those that remain to you? I mean, it's- well, remember, that here's what I believe, is that very soon, as he writes this, within in 18 months, there is no nation of Israel. There, they, there, you know, there were some in the promised land. They took some of the promised land. They lived badly in the promised land. They're no longer in the promised land. They're gone. The only people who live are the exiles in Babylon. And that's why God took them to Babylon, so he could preserve a remnant like Ezekiel, and like Daniel, and like Zerubbabel, and like Nehemiah. These guys are in captivity in Babylon so God can preserve them so that they can come back. Because the land of Israel is left absolutely desolate. And he'll say in here, I don't know if we'll see it, that if, you're, if you don't starve to death, then the pestilence is going to get you. And if the pestilence doesn't get you, a wild animal is going to kill you. That's what Israel's like. Well, and isn't it, I mean, you know this well, but isn't it just stunning to see in the tribulation second half? Yeah, the same. That the remnant of Israel is pulled away from Jerusalem into the desert so that the very thing he can preserve them. will occur again, finally. Right. Uh, it's just... It, I mean, 
Eschatology repeats itself. And God is giving us a picture of what is going to happen. That's why we're in Ezekiel. Because it leads to many things. Okay? Now, I want to get through this today. (laughs) Right, David. (laughs) Now, in chapter 25, God brings Nebuchadnezzar and his army against multiple nations. You'll see in um, chapter 25, the first two verses, they come against the sons of Ammon. And then if you move down a few, just like he said he was going to do, right? If you go on down to verse 8, they then go into Moab and slaughter Moab. Um, if you keep going, well, and I want to show you something. Notice verse 4, it says, Therefore, behold, I'm going to give you the sons of the east for a possession. They will enter their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. So when you see the land of the east, you know he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Because in the previous chapters, he said it's Nebuchadnezzar who's going to come in and destroy the sons of Ammon. So those coming from the east, which would make sense, coming from the Euphrates, that's Nebuchadnezzar coming against these sons. Same thing in Moab, he actually names him. Um, And so they go on down, and, and they're just wiping out these nations. God is giving them into their hands and telling them to wipe them out. And... You go on down in verse 14 is very interesting because this is, the, this is Edom. And Edom, you'll remember, are the descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. And so the Edomites are Esau and all his descendants. And you'll notice it doesn't say that Nebuchadnezzar is going to do anything to them. What it says in verse 14 is that I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Therefore, they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. Thus, they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. That doesn't happen until the Maccabean age. So they don't come against Israel does not fight against Edom until Judas Maccabeus is the leader of Israel. And they do go into Edom and they somewhat decimate them. And then on the heels of that, there's another leader of Israel. This is Judas Maccabeus did it in 164 BC. And I don't know if you've ever read about the 400 years between the close of Scripture and when the New Testament begins. But it's a fascinating. You have, the, you have the Maccabean age. You have the Hasmonean dynasty. I mean, it's very interesting to read. So some of the books of the Apocrypha are good to read for historical content. They don't have any inspired words in them. Okay, so don't get on that track. But they are historical. And they're reasonable. And what you'll find out is that the books of the Hasmoneans, the books of the Maccabean area, era, and um, the 
historians at the time when Jesus lived, they all pretty much agree on those things. And, and so you can gain a lot of knowledge. It's knowledge, it's not inspired scripture by reading some of those books. And it's not wrong to read those, by the way. Just don't believe them to be scripture. So I'd encourage you to do that. So, uh, and then a man named uh, John Hyrcanus also, after the Maccabeans went into Edom, went into Edom with Israel and did more havoc in Edom. So I don't know if that's exactly what God's talking about here, but it appears that's what he's talking about. It may be talking about at the end, at the very end, because Edom is, we'll get there, is left to burn during the millennial kingdom. You think everything's good on the earth? Not in Edom. God seeks vengeance against them for the full millennial reign. And then down in verse 47 of 25. There's not 47 and 25. Jeremiah 47. Um, you'll no, you don't need to turn there. You'll notice in verse 15 that he talks about the Philistines, and that the troops of Nebuchadnezzar take the Philistines coming from the north. So they follow the Euphrates River all the way up until it ends, and then they come southward, and they take the Philistines. You remember the Philistines are all along the Mediterranean Ocean. So God is using Nebuchadnezzar to take sons of Ammon, Moab, bypasses Edom, goes up, takes Egypt in the north, because they had troops up there. They take them, then comes south and takes the Philistines. And then the next place that he takes is a place called Tyre. Now, Tyre was like the merchant city of the whole earth. It's just to the north of Philistia and It was a magnificent city. There's a whole chapter devoted to nothing but the wealth of the city of Tyre. Just speaks of its gold, its silver, its jewels, its artwork. I mean, um, the beautiful daughters, all the, I mean, just goes on and on and on. Whole chapter talking about the wealth of Tyre. It takes Nebuchadnezzar's troops 13 years to siege Tyre. This is after they have taken um, Jerusalem, but they take some 13 years. And when they get there, they basically take everything that was valuable and they throw it into the Mediterranean Ocean. They basically build an island going out of Tyre to throw all this stuff and throw it all away. They take no loot whatsoever from Tyre. And it's the richest city on the planet. And they, it took them 13 years. They were so upset that they just destroyed everything. I mean, think about it. 13 years to take one city. Um, because it was strong and it was fortified and it was wealthy and they could bring in troops. They could pay people to come help them. But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar's troops eventually take them and wipe them out. And there's another whole chapter devoted to the lament for Tyre. 
because that's a horrendous event. The, the kings of Philistia come and sit on the mountain and weep over the destruction of Tyre. Very, very similar to in Revelation where the kings sit and weep over the destruction of Babylon, which is the same kind of city as Tyre. Very wealthy, very prominent. Uh, All the merchants go there. Everybody has a good time there. And yet it gets taken. Very, very similar to what happens there. Okay, and then, I just want you to have this in your mind, that God is using Nebuchadnezzar to take all of these nations. There's nobody left. I mean, they've taken them all now that are north of Israel. Everybody's been decimated. There are no kingdoms left because they go, they go in, you know, Assyria took the northern kingdom. Well, it's Nebuchadnezzar who takes Assyria and slaughters them. That's what you were reading about over in Isaiah. It's, it's, it's Babylon who destroys Assyria. So they've destroyed everybody there is except for Egypt. Egypt is still there, so that's where they go next. Yeah, verse 6 of that, chapter 46, is so important where it ends. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Which is why he's doing this. This is purpose in all of this destruction is to show them that this is God who's doing this. Might be Nebuchadnezzar's sword, but it's God who's taken vengeance on them. Which is why we often hear, well, that's just the God of the old. Yeah, no, no. Like that. He's the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And he will do this at the end of the age. He'll do the same thing again. Okay, let's um, look at 28, 25, and 26. This is in the midst of the description of Tyre and its destruction. But look at verse 25. Listen to the words here. Chapter 28, 25. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it in securely in live in it securely and they will build houses plant vineyards and live securely when i execute judgments upon all who scorn them round about them then they will know that i am the lord their god and he's not talking about israel he's talking about the other nations will know that he's the lord i don't believe that happens until the millennial kingdom and I'll show you why later when we get to chapter 34. Because notice it says, and this has never been true of Israel, that they live in the land securely. They're not worried about anybody coming against them. Ask an Israeli today if he's worried about that. The only time where you had any peace in the promised land was when Joshua was alive. After they had taken all those 31 kings, and it says they lived in peace for a while, not very long, 25 years or so. And this says they lived there securely, and we'll see that in chapter 34, what he's really talking about. So here again, it's unmistakable 
They will live in the land that I swore to Jacob. That's the promised land. It couldn't be anything else. You could not mistake that in Scripture. That's the promised land. It's interesting that this all coincides with Romans 11. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and I, I used to think about that as that last saint that gets saved that kind of triggers yeah. rapture. But it's really, I think, as I've read this, it's really the fullness of God allowing man to accomplish all he intends to accomplish according to his decrees. And when he's done with that, this is all going to get ushered. All right, we're going to stop, but I'll give you a preview of what I believe. During the tribulation, after the rapture, there are scores of people who come to Christ Jesus and are killed because of their faith. Scores of them. So many that God describes them as a multitude that came out of the tribulation when he describes them in heaven. These are those that came out of the tribulation is how it describes them. So they were killed during the tribulation because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So you, you know, you got people who go to church and they've heard this all their life and they don't believe, they don't believe, they don't believe, they don't believe. The rapture happens, the tribulation begins to unfold, they believe. And they're killed for their, for their faith. They've heard it all their lives, they don't believe. When that happens, they will believe. And you've got the, uh, the angels in the midheaven, crying out to people to place faith in God. You've got the two witnesses who come and walk on the earth and say, trust God. So you've got plenty of witnesses. And people who tell me the Holy Spirit is removed from the planet during the tribulation, I go, how do you know that? Scripture doesn't say that. And how could they come to faith in Christ if the Holy Spirit wasn't present? So I just, I just question that. His restraint's loosened, but he's not. He's not gone anywhere. People, scores of people come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. Just means there's not going to be very many people taken in the rapture. They're, you're right. There's not going to be a lot of people taken in the rapture, fewer than we think. Much fewer. Okay, we'll quit. Next week we'll pick up with uh, um, where they take Jerusalem in, um, I think it's in chapter 29, and then we'll quickly move over to 34. Because I want to begin, and in 34, we will walk slowly. We won't do it in one or two weeks. It'll take us a while to get through chapter 34 and the ones that follow. So we're going to slow down, but I wanted you to have this perspective because this is what is going on while Daniel writes what he writes when he's in Babylon. This is what's going on outside of Babylon. It's what goes on when Ezekiel is writing. Okay? Thanks for your time.